10-5, he's into the end zone, touchdown Arkansas State. Deflected into the hands of Feltz, Avery for three, hits! Cover is safe, the Red Wolves have walked it off! Welcome to the Second to None Podcast, the A-State Podcast, presented by Simmons Bank. Now, here's a couple of guys who know the Red Wolves like no one else, Matt Stoltz and Brad Bobo. And we welcome you in once again to the Second to None Podcast presented by Simmons Bank. A lot of stuff to talk about today because there was a lot of things that went on in the past week at Arkansas State. But the biggest story was the fact that a new AD and vice chancellor for intercollegiate athletics was hired here in the last few days. Welcome in to Jeff Purinton. Mm-hmm. Who spent the last 15 years at Alabama. He worked closely with Nick Saban as associate AD for football communications from 2007 to 2015. He was a senior associate AD after that, then had several other titles before being elevated to executive deputy director of athletics last year. And before he was at Alabama, he also worked for the Orange Bowl committee for a couple of years was at Florida State for a long time from 1994 to 2006. And the thing that caught my attention as much as anything, and you look at that resume, it's it's very impressive, but just the glowing comments that everybody had to say about them and talking about Alabama athletic director Greg Byrne, Nick Saban, Kirk Herbstreet, Former Heisman Trophy winner Mark Ingram, the basketball coach there at Alabama, Nate Oates. But it just seems like a home run higher when you look at everything that's being said about this guy. Yeah, I agree. The best part is two things. Number one, just having worked his way up at Alabama, which is what happened. I mean, he just, I mean, look, I mean, obviously it's a big organization to use their words and he started out in that but just kept going pop 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 all the way up to essentially the number two guy there part of the reason they had nate oates comment on his hiring is you know he sort of helped spearhead that search when they hired nate oates at alabama been the sport administrator in basketball and all these other sports and have been the sport administrator at football so working your way up and and then the comments everybody had you haven't I have not seen anything yet from somebody who's dealt with this guy and didn't speak of him favorably. Credit goes to President Dr. Chuck Welch for kind of living up to his word. He said as soon as Tom Bowen stepped down that they would be very quick. Nimble, I think, was the word that he used. Which is always the word I think of with Dr. Welch. Very nimble. And... Hey, they did it. They, they moved very quickly on this, and they seem to have found the right guy. So. And he had uh, Brad Phelps, I think, uh, assist him on that end of it. That was the two guys from Arkansas State I think people were talking with. So, yeah, congratulations to him. And just so you know, we always like time stamp things so people understand the deal. As we're speaking about this, just so you know, you're, if you're, this comes out on Tuesday. When it, but as we're recording this, you and I are basically leaving from this room to – Go to the introductory yep. press conference. Yeah, looking forward to meeting Jeff Purinton for the very first time. And we look to get him in studio yeah. in the very, very near future for one of these second to none podcast visits. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting questions possibly today or, or at some point he's going to get, and I think it's going to be interested to hear his answer to is 
the one thing to be interesting, and I think again, home run hire, I think it's great. He has not necessarily spent time at a place where you're asked to do more with less from a resources standpoint. It'd be interesting to kind of hear how he uh, anticipates that challenge, really for the first time in his career. That was the big story this past week, but men's basketball also making headlines this past week, and Mike Bellotto making several signings. <laughs> yep. Mac Manseal, a pretty highly touted recruit that I actually got to meet a couple of weeks ago when he was in on his recruiting visit. And here's what I liked. And Barry McKnight, the play-by-play voice at Troy, our good friend, was with me at lunch. We uh, were over at J-Towns. And when we walk over, Mac stands up, comes over to us, and shakes our hand, which you don't see a lot from a college recruit. And Barry actually commented on that and how impressed he was that he did that. So comes from a good family, an athletic family, and uh, he's from Detroit, Michigan, a transfer from Henry Ford College and was player of the year in his league last year. So good to see Mac Seal sign with the Red Wolves. Then Dietrich Reeves, who is from Marion and is transferring from John A. Logan College, also signing with the team. We've known about him for a yep. little while, but I was talking with Coach Bellato the other day. He's excited about both of these guys. He was excited about both. And, you know, they, they had Mac Mancio at or very near the top of their recruiting board because of his skill set. And it's really a case where it's kind of a deal where the young man sort of bet on himself. He went the Juco route and played a year, which the only way you can do that, play a year and leave, was if you went in as a qualifier. So it wasn't like he didn't need to go to Juco to get his academics short up. He went to Juco to play at that level and see if he could better what offers he had coming out. So he bet on himself, had a big year in Juco, and uh, hopefully three big years coming up for the Red Bulls. Now, Mac Seal and Dietrich Reeves have been on the radar for a while. Somebody we really didn't know about <laughs> then kind of popped up out of the blue last week as sort of a surprise signing. He just happens to be the second tallest player in A-State history, Aladin Butayeb out of Casablanca, Morocco. How about that? I wonder if he's ever been to Rick's, but he's out of Casablanca, is a transfer from Florida State. He signs last week. Really cool to have a 7-2 guy on the roster. And I was sitting with Coach Pilato last week, and I said, look, I know he's, he's really tall, and that's great, but can he play? And he said, man, he is a really good passer. And obviously, having his presence out there is a big deal too so i'm excited about all three of these guys that the red wolves were able to sign last week they may not be done yeah no they're probably not but that it was you're sitting there saying i'm sitting there with coach Bellato and asking him if he could play i i get what you're saying yeah uh in that you know in that if we're sitting there if you and i are having a conversation with coach Bellato, he's going to give us a really really honest answer about what a guy can or can't bring to the table yes but when you're telling that story all i could think of is John Brady, who one time told me, he's like, you know, I never get it. We, we bring these guys, these people in for a visit, and somebody will come and say, well, can he play? And we'll say, no, he ain't worth a damn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yes, I say that because that is something that, that Coach Bellato said in one of those conversations that you referenced when we sit down and, and we're telling the truth to each other. Yeah. But 
that was good to hear. And I'm, uh, again, excited about the players. But I was also very excited about the announcement of Casey Stanley mm-hmm. returning. And really, Casey was Coach Bellotto's right-hand man for the first three years that Coach Bellotto was at Arkansas State. He's been with Rick Patino the last two years up at Iona College. But you know, he wants to raise a family, and he wants to do it here in Jonesboro. His wife is from here, and Casey decided he wanted to come back to Arkansas State, and I know he's excited about getting back here. Yeah, the best thing you know, Coach Blotto did in uh, the first go-around with Casey Stanley was make sure he got hooked up with a local girl because it helped get <laughs> Casey back uh, on the flip side with a family to, to start and start raising. So thrilled to have those guys back. As far as the A-State baseball team, this past week, it was a tough weekend at South Alabama. South Alabama can really swing it. They're one of the better offenses in the league and not the best matchup for the Red Wolves because they've got seven left-handed batters in the starting lineup. That proved to be something that was tough for the Red Wolves to overcome over the weekend. They lose 7-1 to on Friday. And South Alabama had scored four times before the Red Wolves recorded an out in the bottom of the first inning. Now, Justin Medlin was able to kind of settle in after that. He went four and a third, but their starter was really good. And again, just never in the ballgame after that rough start. And then Saturday, South Alabama scores two in the first inning. And you're thinking, oh, gosh, here we go again. But Will Nash really did a great job after that he ends up going six innings he gave up three earned runs and we go to the seventh and the red wolves are are very much in it they're down four to two in the top of the seventh inning you got runners at second and third and you got jared toler up your rbi leader and their pitcher i think went to a three two count jared fouled off some pitches he ends up striking out so it's it's 4-2 going to into the bottom of the seventh and i talked with both tommy raffo after the game and Alan Dunn the next day uh, during our pregame visit and they both said the same thing if Jared gets a hit there and ties the game then you probably play the rest of the game entirely different you go to the back end of the bullpen if the game's tied going to the bottom of the seventh instead you're still down two you don't go to those guys at that moment and South Alabama ends up scoring nine times in the bottom of the seventh they went at 13 to 2 in a game that was really close leading up to yeah. that moment. Yeah, those nine run innings can make a score look different yeah. real quick. And then Sunday, South Alabama scores in the first seven innings. A State still had a really good chance to win this game. And Coach Raffo, that was one of the first things he said after the game in our visit he said yeah if you would have told me they scored in each of the first seven innings i would have thought well it's going to be a really rough day but the offense was much better at a four-run fourth inning and daedric kale the true freshman out of marion had a big hit a bases clearing double with two outs in that inning put a state on top at the time five to three but then south al ties it in the bottom half they go ahead again still it's nine seven in the top of the ninth A-State has runners at first and second, nobody out, and Jalen DeShazer is up. And Jalen had a big day, hit his first home run of the season, his 19th career, but his first this season. Also doubled off the top of the wall for an RBI later in the game. 
And he hits it hard on the left side, but the third baseman went to his left and ends up starting a double play. Kind of sucked out the momentum at that point. Instead of Jalen getting a base hit, keeping the train moving, double play, you got a runner at third, two outs, and then South Al's able to get the final out of the ball game after that. So South Alabama wins. They complete the sweep and now just two weekends remaining in conference play the Red Wolves if the tournament began today would be on the outside looking in they need to be in the top 10 of the 12 team Sunbelt Conference to go to Montgomery for the conference tournament here in a few weeks but look they're just a half game behind UTA they're a game behind ULM a game and a half behind Appalachian State so a lot is still to be decided here in these final two weekends. Yeah, I still think there's a plenty good chance to get into the tournament because I mean, you could throw a blanket and cover you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 in the standing. So not only could they easily still get in, they could get in and not even be the 10th seed. So there's still a lot of, uh, lot of stuff left on the table these last two weekends. We'll look at the weekend ahead coming up in just a little bit, but We have a very special guest in studio. We're going to be joined by A-State bowler Brooklyn Buchanan when we come back here on the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. When we play today, we win something bigger than ribbons or trophies. We win our tomorrows. Wherever we play, wherever we fight, wherever we overcome odds, we're winning our way. Simmons Bank is committed to supporting women athletes in the communities we serve and are proud to be an official sponsor of A-State Women's Athletics. Not just for a season, but for a winning future. Seasons are short, but fierce is forever. Simmons Bank, member FDIC. And we welcome you back into the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. We are pleased to be joined in studio by our special guest today, A-State bowler, and NTCA first team All-American, Brooklyn Buchanan. How are you doing, Brooklyn? Good, guys. How are you? Good. Let's start by asking Stoltz if he knows what NTCA stands for. National Ten Pins Coaches Association. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> are you impressed? A little bit. A little bit, <laughs> Well, I didn't know until about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and when I looked that up, I saw what NTCA stands stood enough. for. So <laughs> NTCA first team All-American just completed your second year at Arkansas State. First off, just talk about this past season, because Brooklyn, this was the 14th consecutive trip to the NCAA tournament for this bowling program. You get to go play in the postseason at the Lansing Regional. The team was runner-up in that event but uh still a a very very good season for not only you but the entire team yes sir so this year we actually had quite a bit of challenges with like injuries and adapting to a new team after finishing runner-up last season at the national championship i think we all had high expectations coming in and we didn't start off fall semester too good and we were battling some injuries like i said we had a smaller team this year So I was pretty confident going into the regional. Like we all just kind of had a feeling that it was going to go well and it didn't go our way. We did finish runner up in the regional, which obviously we weren't in the final four. So that's not where we wanted to be, but it was a great year. I think we did a good job of like kind of starting a rebuild. We lost Taylor Davis last year and she was a big part of our success at the national championship. So I think this year was a good phase to start rebuilding. Now listen, just so everybody, we get the context here. She's talking about their good rebuilding year. They finished sixth in the country in a rebuilding <laughs> year. So, But I also agree with you. So what's that like mentally? Because it's almost a little bit sad that 
you guys are at a point where the only thing that's going to make you happy is winning a national championship. Yes, sir. So it's definitely uh, finishing runner up last year was really hard emotionally. But then this year it was almost worse knowing that we didn't even make it back. And it's hard because, you know, you have the same top 10 teams every year. So if you're not in the top two after you finish runner up, it's like we should be first every time. And I believe that we're the most talented physical and mental team in the country. I think we just faced some challenges with injuries and we didn't have enough depth for, you know, we had some issues where people couldn't come in. We couldn't have subs, things like that. So I think this year we're just lacking a little bit of depth, but we're still the most talented team in the country. And I think we deserve to win a national championship every year. Now you're from Snohomish, Washington. I'm saying that correct, right? Yes, sir. Where is Snohomish? It's about 40 minutes northeast of Seattle, uh, northern Washington. All right. Where is it in relation to Snoqualmie? Snoqualmie, it's about an hour and a half away from Snoqualmie. Okay. Yeah, a little bit farther west. They've got waterfalls there. Yes, sir. We actually have a cabin about uh, 20 minutes from Snoqualmie itself up on Snoqualmie Pass. There you go. Up there often. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're, you're growing up in Snohomish. Yes, sir. How do you become a bowler? When were you introduced to the sport? Yeah, so my biological family was in the bowling industry when I was young. They owned a bowling alley down in my hometown, and I'm from a fairly small town with like twenty to 30,000 people. It's like a really big bowling town. We had a few bowling alleys there, unfortunately a couple closed, and we had one main bowling center, but that was like a common thing for the youth to do, and it's a good opportunity to earn scholarship money. So I started out when I was about eight. So in a town of 30,000 people, there were multiple Bowling centers. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, a couple of them closed in the early 2000s. So Triangle Bowl is like the primary one and from Longview, Washington. That's where I'm originally from. And I grew up bowling there. So because your family was in the bowling business, you were around the lanes a lot. So were you just playing a lot? When did you realize that you might be really good at this? Yeah. So when I was like a toddler, I grew up in a bowling alley, but I didn't really start bowling until I was about eight. Um, I didn't even start bowling at my family's bowling alley. I started at Triangle Bowl, uh, but they're like my family too. Um, But yeah, I started when I was about eight. And then like knowing that I had the opportunity to earn scholarship money and my goal was to like kind of move on and get out of my hometown. So then when I was in my early teens, I started to like pursue it more and do tournaments and stuff like that. You're a state of Washington kid. So is Justin Costick, the head bowling coach here. I mean, obviously, I figure I know how he could find out about you, but did you know anything about him before? Uh, yes, sir. So I didn't really know a lot about him. Like when I was pursuing or trying to look at colleges, I just looked at like the top programs in the country and tried reaching out to them. And then the owners of Triangle Bowl in Longview grew up bowling with Justin because he's also grown up in the industry in Washington and his hometown is about 40 minutes from mine. So he was kind of like in collaboration with talking to the owners of my bowling center and I was spent a lot of hours there. So they knew me pretty well. So that's kind of how like that relationship started was through the owners of my home bowling center. I don't know why this is on my mind here, but when do you first get your own bowling ball uh, do you have your name on any bowling balls yeah so you start like when you're younger usually you'll start with a plastic ball so i just had i had a pink mini mouse ball when i was like eight or nine and then like as you two. start <laughs> yeah and it did have my name on it um, <laughs> but as you start like to kind of improve i guess or like get more physical fundamentals then you kind of learn different things about what different types of balls do so i think when i was like 11 or 12 i got 
reactive balls, which are like, they have different lines and brands and it's just a standard ball that multiple people could get. Okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm with her. Why that came to mind, but. But you never used the rails, did you? No, sir. <laughs> Maybe when I was a little toddler, but I never remember using them. There you go. Yeah. See, my, my 11 year old still wants to do the rails and I, I don't let her. Hey, so it, we're way shouldn't. past that. By don't now. let them. <laughs> so anyway, you come to Arkansas State. There's obviously a lot of good bowling programs around the country. Going from Snohomish, Washington to Arkansas State is is not a trip we see all the time. Yeah, you know, it's really difficult to be in our sport and pursue a program on the West Coast because there's not really any options over there, let alone elite programs. There are a couple of club programs, like there's one in Washington and a couple in California. So I visited a few schools that were kind of in the Midwest and Southern area. And when I visited here, it was nice, like knowing that he had a relationship with people who I trusted, you know, to help me make decisions. So I think that was a big part of it. And I really loved campus when I came. You know, I know that I wanted to leave my hometown, but I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do. And then, you know, the opportunity to come to college and have part of my school paid for for a few years and get a degree was an opportunity I couldn't really pass up. And I thought I felt the most comfortable here when I went on different visits. What's interesting is, A couple different times you said, I I knew I wanted to get out, but then we were talking before we started recording, and you're also kind of a homebody. You also take any chance to get you go back home. How do both of those things, how are they both true? Yeah, so when I was growing up, I grew up in like a smaller town, like I said, in Washington. Then a couple years ago, I moved up north for training and to live with my coaches. So I had only lived there for about a year a year and a half before I came off to college. So getting to like go to that environment and then coming here was kind of like a culture shock, especially after I had just moved. So where I live now in Snohomish, I love being there. I think Washington is the best place to live. I know everybody says that, but I think Snohomish is the best town to live in in the whole country. But it's nice to see a different part of the country. Like it was a good opportunity for me to learn new skills about myself, learn new things about myself, even though it's hard being away sometimes. But I felt like there's an opportunity that I had to take advantage of. So it it's a fascinating trip in itself, just how you get into the sport, how you come to Arkansas State, and the success that you've already had in your brief time here in Jonesboro. But one of the reasons we asked you in today was because there was a YouTube video that was posted in the last couple of weeks, and it kind of told your story of the environment you grew up in and kind of the things that you had to overcome. And first off, uh, I want to thank you in advance for sharing this story today. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very brave that you did this, but you grew up in an environment of abuse and you cited in this YouTube video that you had an unstable home life growing up. So in your own words, tell us what it was like for you growing up and what kind of environment that you were in also i guess when i was younger so my biological mom had kids fairly young and she had some unstable relationships so i didn't really have a dad around and then i had stepdad boyfriends things like that so that was difficult but then like growing up i think from a young age like i was always like really passionate about stuff that i would do and i was always capable of being good at it And that led my mom to push me 
pretty far. And then as I started to excel in sports or school, anytime that I wouldn't succeed, she'd be very like mentally and emotionally abusive. And prior to like moving a few years ago, moving in with my coaches, which I'll get to that too. But mm-hmm. prior to moving in with them, like I didn't really want to call it abuse because it's like, obviously if you're going to be an elite athlete, like people are going to be hard on you. But I would get just berated publicly from the time I was like, 10 or 11 years old for not winning a tournament, which in like reality didn't really matter at the time. In the video, you or the coaches actually alluded to the fact that people knew that. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, it would just happen in the bowling center. Yeah. So it would just happen publicly. And I come from a very close community. So it was really hard because people knew, but my family was also fairly prominent in the community. So it was like, People knew that the emotional abuse was going on, but it was like, what could they really do about it? Because there was no like evidence of anything. There was also some physical abuse, which I didn't really talk on the video much because obviously those are like strong allegations, but there were like more abuse that would go on behind closed doors. But like as I was growing up, my mom would create this image that like I'm the perfect kid, I'm the perfect student, I'm the perfect athlete. So it's like people didn't really know what to do with that. And then as she started to have some relationship issues, like in my mid-teens, she got kicked out of the house that we were living in. So I was just living there with my former stepdad and my uncle. And I just like looked for a way out and I got the opportunity to meet these coaches and move in with them and move a couple hours away. And I was really thankful. Their names are Dean and Sheila, but I was really thankful that they allowed me the opportunity to get out of that situation. And just before we move on, just to rehab, your mom got kicked out. Yeah. And you stayed. (laughs) Yeah. So my mom like never really had a stable job or anything like that. So we were living with my biological, her uncle, my great uncle in like our family's home that my great grandparents had built. And we were living there and it was me, my brother, my mom, my uncle and my stepdad. And then my mom was having like some relationship issues and then they ended up getting a divorce, but she got kicked out of our house because she didn't own it. So like our uncle kicked her out and then my brother moved out and then I was just living there in the garage. So I didn't really like, I didn't want to move with my mom and with her new boyfriend. So I was thankful that she was willing to sign over guardianship to my coaches so I could move up with them. So you talk about this mental and emotional abuse and being 10, 11 years old. And I'm sure as a kid, you're thinking, well, it's all my fault. I deserve this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I'm sure you didn't have much of a sense of self-worth at that point. Yeah. No, that was really hard because I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I just assumed like I never really grew up at that point. I was never given the emotional tools to like deal with anything. So at that point, especially losing, because it would mostly happen like I would lose a tournament and I would be upset or something and I would cry. Well, my punishment for crying would be getting a cold shower with my clothes on. That was my punishment for crying until I stopped crying. Like that's just an example of like the kind of things that would go on. And then I finally just got to the point where I was just like mentally mute. Like I would just have no response to anything because I didn't want any consequences for having a response. When did you know even if it was your normal, it wasn't normal that everybody didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. So I guess I honestly, when it like first, when the abuse first strikes, I guess if you like looking back, it was really occurring through my whole life, but I guess it wasn't until that age that like, I realized there was something wrong, like my early teens or like preteens. And like, you know, I grew up, like I said, in a small community, I was really close with the people at my school. There was only a few schools. So like I would go to my friend's house and they would have, you know, a house with their 
mom and their dad and siblings, different rooms, things like that. And like, I never wanted to invite people to my house. I know that sounds a little cliche, but I just lived somewhere where it wasn't an environment where I like wanted to have anybody around because I had seen like my peers environments and knew that it just wasn't the same. So obviously you're going through a lot. When did you, when did you realize that it was indeed abuse that you were going through? And this wasn't your fault that all this stuff was happening to you. Yeah. So it wasn't probably wasn't until almost, I guess I'm still 18. So I I say late and early teens, but I'm still a teenager. But when I was like 14 and 15, when my mom's relationship with my stepdad, like started becoming more unstable and I grew a lot closer with like people from the bowling center that I grew up at, which I'm really like incredibly thankful for them. Like the bowling center in my hometown was really the only thing and the people that like got me through all of that. So like as I grew closer with them and like would talk more and more, like people started would like talk to me and be like, hey, that's not okay. And then when I got the opportunity to move up north and start with the organization and the coaches that I live with now, they were like, no, like that's really not okay. Like I would go to their house and I would stay for the weekend to train. And my mom would just like drop me off there and I would stay there and train and get coaching and stuff. And they would like slowly like ask me questions about my life. You know, like if you're going to build new relationships with people, obviously they're going to be interested in what you have going on in your life. And they're like, it just baffled them the things that I would tell them. And to me, that was like just my everyday life. Like that Mm. was normal. All right. So you've referenced them several times. (laughs) Yeah. Your coaches. Tell us about Dean and Sheila Buchanan and how were they introduced into your life? Yeah, so I was traveling um, my first year at a national tournament, junior gold. Like I was a fairly late bloomer at the elite tournaments. I didn't start at the national level till I was 14, which sounds young, but it's more common for like the 10, 11 year olds, like they're already at that level. Um, But like financially, I wasn't able to travel or do any of that. So when I was 14, I was at a national tournament and I got a message on Facebook from Dean Buchanan. He has a nonprofit called Off-Broadway Bowling Academy. And they basically just like want to help youth who can't afford basically like bowling equipment or coaching and things like that. He just looks for the youth that like have potential and talent, but who can't like don't have the resources, I guess, to use it. Um, So he reached out to me when I was at a national tournament to come up to his clinic. And I said I couldn't afford it because we had just done all this traveling. And he said that I could come for free. So then I got to meet them. Well, I got to meet him primarily. I hadn't really met Sheila yet. And then a few months later, he had reached out to me again and said that he wanted to like develop a team of youth bowlers to kind of like promote or like be a part of his nonprofit. And I was one of those people. And then at that point, I would travel up there for coaching and things like that. And like I said, I would like slowly start to share more stories about my life. I'd be there for the weekend. So like if he he's also retired from the army. So if he was working or something, like I would go with his wife to like the store, hang out with her, or something Sheila. And I would start to tell her about my life. And I swear one time I told her something and she asked me to repeat it like five times because mm. she was like in awe of like what I said. Mm. And so like I slowly started to build a relationship with them and they're just like, I'm so grateful for them. They're such amazing people. And like that they gave me the opportunity to get out of the situation that I was in. I'm forever grateful for them. And then as I like continue to grow and pursue my bowling, like with college and things like that, they were really helpful. And then in 2019, which was a year before I came here, I was able to move in with them. And my mom agreed to sign over guardianship to them. 
So then I moved from my high school state bowling tournament, which was up north. I moved from there to their house because I didn't have anything. You know, I had some clothes and that was about it. So hmm. I moved from my last tournament for my high school bowling team from Longview. I moved from there in with them. Now they're my legal guardians and I call them my parents and I'm incredibly grateful for their role in my life. Mm. You said, you know, even when you were a kid in these tournaments, in the bowling centers, people knew what you were dealing with at some level. They knew you were going to get yelled at or whatnot. What did Dean and Sheila know beforehand? So they really didn't know a lot. Dean, like I said, he was in the military, so he had just finished three years of being stationed in Texas. I think he left Texas in 2018 and he lived a few hours away from me and primarily at that like at that point I was mostly doing local things which was like Oregon and southwest Washington so he hadn't really met me at all until or known anything about me until I went up to his clinic when he invited me and he hadn't really seen my mom or seen me in any competitions until after he had already invited me to be a part of his team so it really was at that point it was he reached out because he just thought you were a good youth bowler that needed financial help. Yes. And that was the the extent of it. Yes, sir. Your name is Brooklyn Buchanan. So <laughs> we're talking about Dean and Sheila Buchanan. When you turned 18 and you mentioned this in the YouTube video as well, you changed your last name. Yes, sir. So like I said, my family is like very prominent in my hometown and I feel like, you know, I really lost myself like in my early teens dealing with all that. So having the opportunity to like move in with them, they really welcomed me as family. They have other kids who are older than me who don't live at home, but like they were just so kind and welcoming me to their family. And there's all sorts of friends that they have up there who welcomed me like I was one of their own kids. And I just really felt a part of the family and our relationship really developed and it was just nice to like finally get that in my life where like that's the normal relationship that a parent would have with their kids just felt really fortunate to like have them be a part of my life and knowing that like we were going to be family for the rest of my life and I just wanted to share that with them so when you change your name do you talk about that on the front end with them who brings it up or do you just go do it and come back and say hey guess what I did How's that go? So I moved in with them. I'll go back a little bit. I moved in with them when I was 15. And then I had been talking about it, I think, when I was like, probably around my birthday when I turned 17. So I was 16, just turned 17. And it was three months before I came to college and I was talking to them about it. I brought it up. I asked Dean about it one night. I think it was like after my birthday, like I had a really special birthday because I hadn't really like had that when I was a kid and I thought it was so sweet. And I was just talking to him and I brought it up prior to bringing it up to them. I talked to one of their family friends about it who like visits every week. Um, they were out of town and I was talking to her about it, but I brought it up to Dean first cause Buchanan like is his last name. And then Sheila started with a different last name. So I wanted to talk to him first and he was all like gung ho for it, made him really happy. And then I talked to Sheila and you know, she tries to be a little bit more rational. So she said that I should wait till I'm 18 because at that point they still hadn't really experienced my mom that much yet. And until I was 18, I was still having like an open line of communication and a relationship with her just because I was appreciative of the fact that she did sign over guardianship. So it wasn't until I was 18 that Sheila wanted me to change my name because she wanted it to be my decision and not have me just being like an emotional kid saying, oh, I want to change my name. She wanted to wait until I was an adult and could like make the decision myself and go do it myself. You still have a relationship with your mom now, your biological mom? Uh, no, sir. I saw that when I was 18, but 
my mom came to visit a couple times after I'd moved in with Dean and Sheila. And then the last time did not go well at all when she stayed the night. And they finally like got to see kind of the reality of like what goes on. Yeah. And at that point, they left it up to me once I had turned 18, what I wanted to do with it. So even in that setting, in somebody else's house, that stuff went on. Yeah, it was a definitely a shock to Dean and Sheila because they weren't expecting. They knew what I had told them, but I know Dean discussed it a little bit in the video, but like you hear stories about people and it's like, okay, how much of it is true and how much of it isn't, but you don't really know until like you witness it firsthand or hear it firsthand. And then at that point she's not welcome anymore. And when I turned 18, they left it up to me of what I wanted to do as far as a relationship went. So and he asked specifically about your mom, but as you said, at one point you're living with other members of your family, even after she was told to leave. So what's the relationship like there? And I mean, do they get it? Do you have members of your family that understand that you went and took a different last name? Yes, sir. So I think that I'm really fortunate. My family has been very understanding. My uncle who I lived with had my mom's family's last name. And then Boudreaux is actually my grandpa's family's last name, which I do love all the Boudreaux. Like I'm so fortunate that I had amazing family members it was really me changing my last name was just really me starting over and starting mm-hmm. a new life up north and kind of leaving the life that I had in Longview behind me. I do still stay in contact with a lot of my family there and I talk to my grandparents regularly. I'm close with my aunt and uncles. Um, some of my aunt and uncles actually let me live with them in kind of an interim time period between my mom getting kicked out and me moving up north because I had a few months to finish of a semester and high school bowling. So, you know, my family was very understanding. I think the only people who I really don't have a relationship with anymore is my mom and my former stepdad. But other than that, all of my family and friends down there have been very understanding and supportive. So after all this, how is your self-worth different? And what would you say to somebody who went through the same situation that you did? Yeah, so one thing that... I will say is something that Sheila has always told me since before I even moved in with them is that one day I was going to look back and like be grateful or fortunate that I went through hardships in my life. And she was totally right. You know, going up there, I had a lot of like emotional and mental, like I wasn't totally stable, which obviously no teen is, but I definitely had some more issues that needed to be dealt with. So like getting counseling helped me a lot. And then just doing mental training and physical training on my sport. But they really helped me realize that like, it's not about getting first place. You know, they would still love me if I quit bowling and I didn't really want to bowl anymore after I had moved in with them. Cause I finally got to like a stable environment, but they just helped me so much. They've helped me realize that you can't place your value in other people. I didn't have very much self-worth because my mom abused me, but like at that point in my life, I was placing all my value in the way my mom was treating me not in how I felt about myself. So like they helped me realize that like I can be the best version of myself and really have helped me to like grow into the person that I knew I could be from a younger age. And looking back now, like I am grateful and that sounds really weird, but I am grateful that I went through all those hardships because it helped me learn a lot of life skills that, you know, some people just don't have at my age because they never had to do anything, you know, like they had parents who took care of them, which is great for a lot of people, but you know, it did help me develop a lot of skills, but I am fortunate that I went through all that despite it being really hard at the time. I think it helped me a lot now. 
you know, just be a strong individual. And what I would tell somebody who might've been through the same thing is to just keep grinding. I mean, there's always, you're going to get to the point in your life where you're going to find a way out. It might feel like it's horrible and terrible, but there'll be an opportunity that comes up for you in the world. If you're just a good person and do good things, there'll be an opportunity that comes up that you can reach for at some time. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. And I just, I have a feeling that by you sharing what you went through and being so open, so honest about this, this is going to help somebody else. So I sure hope so. <laughs> thank you very much yes, for doing you. this. Yeah. Because, thank you guys uh, for having me. Uh, th- this is uh, just an amazing story and we are so thrilled that you're here at Arkansas State. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good summer. Brooklyn. Thank you. All right. We've got more to come here on the second to none podcast presented by Simmons Bank right after this. Your first home is like this dream. The day you walk in, the sun seems to shine more brightly. The ceilings, they just seem taller. And you'll never fix that creaky floorboard because it sounds like comfort. What a hug would sound like if it made a sound. And that's when you realize you're home. Really, really home. Realize your dream with a home loan from Simmons Bank. Dreams realized. SimmonsBank.com. Member FDIC, equal housing lender, subject to credit approval. Wrapping things up here on the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank. And before we go into anything else, thanks again to Brooklyn Buchanan. What an amazing young lady, number one. And for her to just be so open about everything she went through. And I just keep thinking about, you know, just... At such a young age, just blaming yourself when you lose a tournament and thinking that you're not worth anything. And to find the family that she did in the Buchanans, certainly a happy ending to that story. But she's had to overcome a lot. And, uh, you know, Arkansas State's lucky to have her. Yeah. And um, before we ever started recording that, I had already said it. And I know you came in and did, too, because we each talked with her separately. It's like, hey. We saw the video, and, and that's that's great. But at any point in this time, we ask something you don't want to talk about, don't talk about it. We'll move on. And she's like, no, you know, I mean, she said then, I don't think that'll happen. I'm pretty open about everything. And she surely was, and we appreciate that. Looking at the week ahead, big week for the A-State track and field teams. They're chasing more championships, both the men and women trying to repeat Again, as they head down to Lafayette to compete in the Sunbelt Outdoor Championships. And you had made the comment last week, and this is entirely true, just how Jim Patchell plans all this stuff out and how set this schedule is going into the season. And, of course, you're leading up to the conference championships and for some of these athletes, even beyond that. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'll see how it plays out this week. Yeah, it's really hopefully uh, some more hardware will be collected. It's not surprising, but there's just so much more to it than meets the eye, and what these guys do to sort of construct a championship weekend, and how far out they build toward that, and and again how they even do it a little bit differently for the athletes they think have a chance to compete in a regional or a national championship. You know, Coach Patchell, he's an interesting cat because they just win and win and win and win, and it's still not what he's after. Like, he will tell you, he wants this program to be at a point where it takes enough people to the national championship to score enough team points to rank, you know, nationally. That's what he's after. And, you know, they keep winning some about titles along the way, but they keep, keep pushing. As we record this, 
Our buddy Olivia Schmidt is playing at the NCAA Women's Golf Championship Regionals in on her birthday. Tallahassee, Florida on her birthday. So happy birthday to Olivia. And, of course, this is the first of three straight days that she's playing in the regionals as an individual qualifier, the only individual qualifier in the conference. And just a big deal. I was talking with Mark Taylor from Sports Information last night, and he's there on the trip, too, and he's walking all 54 holes with Olivia, so he's getting plenty of steps in this week. (laughs) Yeah, Mark does a great job. He's down there. The A-State coaching staff is down there with her. as uh, She's just the second individual from Arkansas State to compete in the NCAA championship. First since 2000 or 2001. And uh, hopefully she... Season's not done yet. Get out of uh, Tallahassee and go to the national championship. And then A-State baseball in action this week. They actually play their final midweek road game on Tuesday night as they travel over to Memphis looking for a season split against the Tigers. First pitch for that one at 6 o'clock. And then we talked about it earlier, two critical weekends to complete the regular season and the final weekend at home coming up this weekend as Georgia State comes to town. Friday at 6, Saturday at 6, Sunday at 1 o'clock as the Red Wolves try to fight for a spot in the Sunbelt Conference Tournament. And this is a Georgia State team that's really interesting. Through four weekends, they were sitting in first place at 10-2 and two in the league. And then they got swept three weekends in a row, lost nine straight conference games, fell to 10 and 11, and then they took the first two games of their series against Appalachian State this past weekend. So now they're sitting at 12 and 12 in what's been a roller coaster of a conference season so far. So I don't know what kind of Georgia State team that we're going to see this weekend. Well, I'd vote for the one that got swept three weeks in a row if, I, if, they're, if they're seeking my yes, input. That's our preference. <laughs> Covered a lot in this episode, but uh, I always want to end it by giving you an opportunity to vent a little bit. Teenagers, I don't. you've gone through one and you got another one coming. They're weird now. I'm telling you. Weird's a, a good word. Just finished prom season with our oldest. We mm-hmm. got a... a son that's a junior so he went to the prom for the first time and i mean it was something that's changed since back in my day like he and i spent some great time together getting his outfit together and stuff because you just don't go rent a tux anymore you piece together these outfits because he wanted to wear adidas tennis shoes with it identical to the ones i have on today and so it's all good man we're sitting ready to go and prom day comes up we're at the house i'm saying you know what's your schedule for today well we're supposed to go downtown for pictures at 5 30 or 6 he was going with a, a friend of his who goes to another school that was a co-worker at once upon a time and they were going with another couple that really is a couple there was the four of them going they're going to go downtown and get pictures and i said well you know and that's really about how much i said and he jumped up and cut me off because he made an assumption of what i was about to say <laughs> and he was correct what i was about to say is you know we're going to go get a picture as in physically going to take a picture to have a picture Okay. And he wasn't for it. I've told people, I mean, it would not have made him any matter had I just said, well, you know, we've changed our mind and you can't go to prom now. He wouldn't have put up any more fight to that. They did that I was going to take a stupid picture. I hated taking pictures at that age, too. I, I don't know if it, that's well, just... Yeah, it's not, he wasn't mad. He wasn't mad about going to take pictures. The issue wasn't going to take the picture. The issue was that we wanted to go get one. 
And so he comes back. So he, he does what teenagers do. You know, he goes and tells his mom, there aren't going to be any parents there. And his mom comes to me and says, hey, there's not going to be any parents there, he says. I said, well, no kidding. That's what he said. I said, so riddle me this. Who's taking the picture? <laughs> that's, a, that's a solid point. Needless to say, we just, I mean, ended up having to just like. Did you take the picture? Yes. But okay. even then, but it was, I mean, we just had to go where we knew there was, we had to just drive up on it, get out and let me get the picture. It wasn't because he, it was a, he knew we were coming. Just had to bust up in there and get the picture. Well, you got the job done. That's you right. got the picture. It's been a fun Thanks episode. Thanks to find my friend. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again to Brooklyn Buchanan for joining us. For Brad, I'm Matt. You've been listening to the Second to None podcast presented by Simmons Bank.